0: I could have uh, cut off quite a bit of the time to get here by dreaming big earlier on. As I look back and think, gee, I wish I would have done that right out of the gate and said, I'm going to look for big problems. Um, But I'd always felt, hey, where am I going to get the money? How are we going to solve the problem? And now, having gone through what we've gone through and having money in the bank, I look back on that and say, a lot of times there's a chicken and egg there. In order to get big money, you need to have a big solution. Means you make a, a tough problem and make it look easy. Um, and in fact, that's required in order to scale.
1: This is the ProCo 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor, hosting ProCo 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs and leaders. My guests have built very successful businesses with team members and collaborators who also love all that Colorado has to offer. Today's episode is with Tim Reeser, founder and CEO of Lightning E-Motors based in Loveland. Lightning E-Motors was in the news lately for going public through a merger and when it announced an $850 million contract to build a fleet of electric shuttle buses. Lightning E-Motors takes an interesting approach. It purchases the chassis of vehicles, basically the vehicle without an engine or transmission, then installs an electric powertrain. We'll talk about this approach to the electric vehicle market, about why Lightning is approaching it the way it is, about the process of merging through a blank check company to go public, and a few other things that made me curious as I explored Tim's background. So, Tim, thanks for joining me on Proco360. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to be here. I always enjoyed the conversation with thanks. you. Thanks. And it's been years since you and I connected. So, you look the same. I'm not sure about <laughs> this side. But, you know, right. how, did, yeah, how did I do on in the intro? Give us a, a quick overview of <clears throat> Lightning e
0: Motors. Yeah, I think the intro was excellent. A, a few things I like to say that maybe catches people. So the tension is Lightning builds the, the vehicles no one else wants to build and no one else is building. So when you think about, in the U.S., uh, the commercial vehicle markets, and these are things like ambulances, these are things like bucket trucks and tool trucks, these are things like uh, shuttle buses and small school buses and big school buses, all of these are small segment markets that together make a very large market. So we we generally talk about a $68 billion total addressable market space, but each one of these is small. And each one of these are unique. And when you think about electrification of these markets, uh, it's much more challenging than it used to be in a typical internal combustion engine space. Meaning, uh, as you think about the electrification of a shuttle bus, things like uh, moving to high-voltage air conditioning and wheelchair lifts and where do you put the batteries and how do you handle the customization around wiring harnesses and the customizations around the mechanical upfits that happen – it's not the same as it was in an internal combustion engine, which has created a tremendous opportunity for Lightning to specialize in this highly segmented, highly unique space with a cost-effective solution for these customers. So
1: basically what you're saying is the the vehicles you listed off in your, you know, from shuttle buses to all kinds of other things, ambulances, other things, these are small enough markets that you're not going to find companies building electric vehicles from the ground up versus you being able to buy essentially the... Everything about these vehicles except for the motor and transmission, and then you put the electrical system in it. Yes, but I'll I'll put
0: a subtlety to it. Um, We look at these all as purpose built vehicles, meaning if you think about a shuttle bus today, most shuttle buses, even as a gasoline or a diesel shuttle bus, start as a Ford chassis. They go to somewhere who puts a shuttle bus body, a custom shuttle bus body on it. They often go somewhere else that puts a, a special set of custom seats. They might mm-hmm. go somewhere else that does other custom outfits. They'll go to get a, a fourth or fifth place to put a wheelchair lift on it, a sixth place to put a special mm-hmm. voltage, high-voltage air conditioning system on it, um, and then it goes to a dealer who sells it to a customer. So, it, And these are fairly common, whether you see one at, at the ski area that you're at, whether you see uh-huh. one at RTD doing the dial arrive. ride or, or accessoride vehicles, um, they're quite common, but they're all unique and all specialized. And that's the area where when we come in, we get a chassis and we do this, We're it's still a ground-up vehicle. It's very specific hmm. to what RTD wants. It's very specific to what the Ritz-Carlton wants. It's very specific to what the Hilton wants. Uh, it's, or just what, what's gas the powered. it's just not gas-powered. Huh. It's just not gas-powered anymore. So and we so this, still see them as, as custom vehicles.
1: Yeah, so this, this term retrofit, which was my understanding of what your company was early on, where you bought a vehicle you took out the guts and put in electric. That's not the way it works anymore, or was it- Correct. No,
0: no. and and originally, especially when we first got in the business, it was very much a retrofit. We were putting a hybrid system on a vehicle, and it was a a retrofit. In many cases, the original engine stayed in, and we were putting a brake regen solution on it. Now, in today's world, it's very custom. Each vehicle tends to be very different, Um, but we've also recently announced we're going to be building our own chassis. So, even although we differentiate ourselves and say we aren't retrofitters anymore, we build yeah. a, a custom vehicle, now it's even more so. We're actually getting into the space where we're building our own chassis because we see an opportunity and a need to have additional customization. We want a chassis that uh, supports better battery integration, supports more batteries, So what is a supports chassis? more weight.
1: Exactly. I mean, I, I think a chassis, I'm not even sure if I
0: understand the exact term. Yeah. So, when we use the word chassis, we think of the metal framework, the wheels, the tires, the axle, and the steering. Um, mm. So, On top of that might go a you could take the same chassis and on top of it put a shuttle bus. You could take that same metal framework that's underneath it and put a box truck like IKEA might use or Best Buy might use. You could take that same chassis and put a tow truck. You might take that same chassis and put a refrigerated truck. You might take that same chassis and put an ambulance. Literally, these are all normal use cases. And in a gasoline vehicle, they often had the same engine and transmission and you could do that. In electrification, it's just not possible. And in fact, you don't want to anymore. some real benefits of customizing the electrification for that. When you think about, we recently did ambulances and you think about what an ambulance can be when you can run it all electric. Many of the uh, applications that used to require this vehicle to sit around and idle, no longer have to sit around and idle. As long as the equipment's built right, we've got the battery space to to manage all that high power medical equipment live.
1: I guess uh, in my research, I wasn't fully up to speed because I thought you were sort of taking out the the gas engine and transmission, putting in electric and you know selling it as a more efficient vehicle, you're saying now that you're doing much more than that. M- much more. With electrification, there's a real
0: opportunity. We want to look at the whole thing. And the fact that we may, in some cases, be on a traditional chassis from somebody mm-hmm. like Ford or General Motors or Hino, or in some cases, our own custom chassis, um, is secondary to the fact that the rest of the vehicle is highly customized. The wiring harness is very specific for these vehicles. The extra equipment on board
1: uh, is customized to leverage the fact that you got all this battery. (sighs) But this whole thing now sounds more complicated than I thought, Tim, because initially I thought, okay, they're taking out the engine, they're putting in a battery-powered system, and then that's it. But now you're talking about, I mean, essentially I was going to say, why is this better than just starting from scratch? But now you're starting from scratch, right? Right. When did you make that shift? So about three years ago, we we started into electrification from hybridization,
0: changed our name from Lightning Hybrids to Lightning Systems. And then uh, as we got more engaged and deeper and deeper in the systems, we changed our name to Lightning E-Motors about a year ago. Um, And that's really, that transition has happened over that same period where we've gone from really being an upfitter to being a complete electrification solution.
1: So now that I get that you're really, you've shifted gears, you're doing it from the ground up. I mean, now it sounds like you are in the fray with all of the other electric vehicle companies, although it seems like you're maybe further along because yours are actually you're selling fleets and you're out there and so forth. But I mean, now you're in this crazy, uh, what I called before tsunami wave of competition. You know, I mean, is that where you are now? You jumped into that? It looks like it. But in fact, in a lot of our markets, there's no competition at all. So, for
0: example, if oh, really? you want, that's to, scary when yeah. somebody says I have yeah? no
1: competition. Uh, yeah. so I never it, believe that when they it, say I it, have no and competition. And in
0: fact, most of the time, I tell business owners if there's no competition, you have to question whether there's a market. So well, Dave, that's you, a, yes. You, yes. You, you and I agree yes. on that. But I'll give you some some examples that I think will make it make it make sense. Electric ambulances. No one else in the United States today makes an electric ambulance. It's clearly an opportunity. Um, the electric ambulances have their own specific opportunity or, or specific challenges, but it's a real opportunity. And so we're the only group making an electric ambulance today. Well, they accelerate faster. They accelerate faster. (laughs) You can deal with, instead of having to sit around and idle and run the engine, uh, you can keep all that electronic equipment running. Um, There's a lot of real benefits on the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning side to the vehicle. Um, So significant opportunities. It had to be custom designed. We're the first people to make it. It's fairly complicated, so there's a barrier to entry for other people. And we own it now. So Ford doesn't actually want the markets Hmm. we're in, and neither does GM, and neither do many of these other. Starts.
1: Well, I'm going to question you on that a little more in just a minute. Reminding listeners, this is Proco 360, named Best Denver Podcast Three Years Running, and this year named Best Colorado Business Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. My guest today is Tim Reeser, founder and CEO of Lightning E Motors. Thanks to our sponsors, First Bank. Kinsley Meetings via Technologies and Digital Frontier Printing and hey congrats to Sarah Schaffner at Digital Frontier Printing she bought the company is working with the team now to take it to the next level find her at thedigitalfrontier.com also thanks to the Colorado Chamber of Commerce for its support for me and Proco 360 so i'm going to push just a bit more Tim when cuz when somebody says like when you you said 6000 i think 6000 school buses or something. I mean at some point That's a big enough number and that other people just get interested. Is is Do you anticipate that, or do you think this your, your niches are going to stay small enough that you just get to own them indefinitely?
0: So historically, they have been for a long time. So if you think about shuttle buses today, our partner, Forest River, owns 80% of that market. Hmm. There's th- four other players. It's remained small because it is this customization, the go-to-market. So when a lot of people think about differentiation, they start by thinking of the technical differentiation, which we've talked about. But they haven't started to think about the market differentiation, the go-to-market aspects Mm -hmm. of this. So as you think about what it takes to go sell, well, I'll use a different example, a small school bus, a type A school bus. Um, those school buses today. If you decide you want to make a brand new one from scratch and go after six thousand unit market, um, Ford has said, for example, if they want to do it, it's about a billion and a half to two yeah. billion dollars. To yeah, go they're do not going to do it. So the yeah. market isn't there. Then they've got a lot of customization, so it doesn't fit their business model. So, but then you also think about go to market. There's very specific dealers who know how to go after it. The customers know the brand names they yeah. like. So, so you're they like not a selling direct, correct? Interrupting in, in, you. Excuse
1: me. You're not selling direct. You you correct. are producing a uh, a product. For the main player in the in that space and in multiple spaces, right. So now they have a gasoline version for, and they have an electric version. They're a trusted dealer that customers all over the country already are using, right.
0: So you think about yeah.
1: names we've been involved with uh, over
0: time, whether it's. Uh, the the various places like an ambulance, a leader ambulance, the ambulance folks who buy ambulances, the hospitals and the ambulatory places, they know these brands, they recognize these brands, mm-hmm. they trust these brands, they know the salespeople, they know where to send an RFP, they know how to get yeah, service. Yeah, yeah. All of that embedded ecosystem that when you think about go-to-market, how am I going go to go-to-market into uh, really a traditional space, we've chosen to go into market, embed ourselves in a, in yeah. a go-to-market, an ecosystem that's already uh, well alive and-, and- yeah. well established.
1: That makes perfect sense. Of course, you still have to, you know, get the kinks out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and so that's what I've been reading about you guys that, you know, you're selling small quantities, but now those quantities are getting bigger and getting bigger, but you might, mu- I mean, sure, this, uh, your go-to-market, uh, partner must have I mean, they had to have some skepticism at some point.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, they've tried a lot of other people. So, <laughs> oh, they did? Oh, yes, yes. So I'll use Forest River because it was public. They had used uh, three small players who, mm-hmm. you know, at one time we looked at competitors. Um, but when they spent the time with us, visited us, came to our factory, they said, okay, you guys can scale. Hmm. And where the market's been, and I think this is an important look at electrification, I think people see this in cars, passenger cars as well. It's at an inflection point, meaning yeah. – with most of our customers and with most of the go to market partners like Forest River, they'd already come to the conclusion their customers were pulling this. The customers, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, to use a Denver example, RTD or Canopy Parking or these yeah. kind of
1: people who use these shuttles want an electric shuttle. So they shuttle. had to find a source at some point. Right. It sounds like they'd struck out three times already and. Right. you know, you guys were ready for the, yeah, to, but to take it. But I think they
0: also were looking for somebody who could, what, what everybody found about these inflection points, and I use some other examples, whether you talk about digital cameras and what happened to Kodak and yeah, digital yeah, film sure. or or anything else that went through a dramatic and fast inflection point, you had to have a product people wanted and that people believed was going to take off. You had to have a pretty compelling business case. All those things had to play out. You had to have the ecosystem to support it. So right. when and you it, think about electrification, whether it's charging, whether it's service, yeah. all those things had to be there for the market to inflect. So as people looked out and said, hey, we think this market's going to inflect, we think it's about to really take off. Then it comes down to where does the price work? Can we make this thing take off at a price point that's compelling? Yeah. And that's all about volume. So when you think about a marriage and the big deal with us with a marriage with Forest River is because they owned 80% and still do own 80% of the shuttle bus market, a marriage with them meant we could go big. And so from our standpoint, by being able to go big,
1: we yeah. could drive the price down, but with were they the price willing, coming
0: down, it becomes a snowball. Yeah.
1: Were they willing though to, I mean, there's a lot of crap that can go wrong with a new vehicle, uh, a ton of it. And it probably still does only lessening, you know, lessening and lessening. Um, but you know, isn't that an awkward dance as they're like, yeah, we want you to be successful, but we're not going to put you out in front until, you know, most of the kinks are gone. And isn't that really as i said like an oh, yeah. awkward long dance oh I, I think for any
0: business it is but I, I in some days i tell people sometimes i miss the software business because in in the old days in the software business uh, you could you could fake a demo a lot easier you could yeah, 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 it, yeah, in sure. our world if the vehicle doesn't, doesn't run during a demo it doesn't run during a demo it's really difficult to to wave your hands and fake a demo so you're exactly right dave the challenge around proving reliability proving efficacy of of a manufactured product as opposed to just a piece of software or or just just a, a, you know, a media type thing, it takes longer and yeah. it takes a lot more yeah. to build trust. Um, so we've been building electric vehicles since 2017. So we're in our fourth mm-hmm. year. So we were able to show them history. We were able to show them data. We yeah, were able to show come them. On, four years is vehicle. nothing for oh, a vehicle, yeah, could, for, for a vehicle. It's true. It's it's nothing. true. We're, we're still in the early days. So these, yeah. these customers do take a risk on us. They yeah. see, obviously we spent a lot of time talking about how there's less maintenance and how from a durability standpoint, the product has the potential to be a lot more durable and electric motors, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot fewer moving parts. But all of that, they still see us as an early company. And it yeah, is still yeah. the challenge of anybody in the early stages is the dance of finding a customer willing to take some risk Aches. and willing to yeah, bet on you. Yeah. And conversely, uh, willing to put the work in to prove yourself out and, and do what it takes to get there if we look at where we were a year ago with price, it was very difficult. It took a very special early adopter customer to say, hey, I'll take the risk on reliability. Um, It's very expensive up front, But what's happened to us and many others is the price has come down, whether you're talking about passenger vehicles or our vehicles, the price has come down dramatically. Um, Reliability has obviously gone up. And now there's a lot of case studies where people can actually look. So I did a customer case study recently for an airport customer, um, showed the customer no grants, uh, no subsidies, saving $700 per month on the vehicle. So they leased both, they had gasoline shuttles, uh, it was an airport shuttle, gasoline shuttles, electric shuttles, leased them both for a seven year period, looked at the operating costs, they're saving $700 a month. So is this every single customer? No. And and that would be unfair to say it, but are there now more and more a significant number of customers who get a very compelling uh, cost differential? And then they look out and say, hey, my drivers like it better. It's much quieter. My passengers like it better. I don't have to stop for oil changes, I don't have to stop as much for brake changes. It feels safer because of the regenerative braking. So they look at all of that and they say, "Hey, I'm willing to place a bet on this." When they if they only had a part of that, if it wasn't less expensive, if the operating cost wasn't validated, if it if it wasn't uh dry, you know, if it didn't drive better, if it didn't have the power, you lose those customers. They aren't willing to take that. But because all of that, the confluence of all of that has
1: happened, we're able to get customers to to jump ship now and really take it. I'm going to back up to when this all started, because it was sort of an unlikely start. You were vice president of Colorado State University Ventures. Um, it seems like you started doing this, uh, a little conversion, experimental conversion of a sedan to a hybrid, you know. And then uh, what happened from, obviously that worked, but I mean, that's just a little hybrid mm-hmm. conversion. Now you've you're got $850 million order for trucks. So what happened though with that hybrid to get you to where you you started a company. It, it,
0: I, I think, and and the other entrepreneurs on the show will like the twelve years of instant success. Yeah. That occurs. So, um, in two thousand eight, when we started it, uh, like many companies, we didn't really know what we were going to be. And in. in fact, as you said, made a car. Uh, I think the story is very interesting for local folks. We we put it in the the in two thousand nine, April of two thousand nine, which is those of you who go to the Denver Auto Show remember that's when the Denver Auto Show is. We put that car in the Denver Auto Show, and at that time, the uh, one of the directors of the Colorado Fleet came by the Denver Auto Show and said. I love that powertrain, but I wouldn't put it in a car. If you'd put it in a truck, I'd be a buyer." and i had always been a b2b guy and i was really struggling at the time with how i was going to sell a car to consumers because it wasn't my background or my space in terms of how to make a car for that consumer space and keep in mind this is before tesla had really seen success either so this was very early on but i looked at the commercial vehicle space and said hey that's b2b it's an area i understand it's an area i really believe we can be successful in pivoted the company at that time to build hybrid systems for trucks and buses
1: was it even a company you just made one car we'd
0: made one car so we we started <laughs> Did the company you call we, the company yeah. we named the company we called it Lightning Hybrids oh, you at the did. time. Yeah, the so, one so we were called Lightning company. Hybrids. Yeah, nice. So then, okay. then it became a truck company and a commercial truck company. Got it. And evolved from there, and then uh, that evolved from a hybrid company
1: into a electric vehicle company. Was there time. like a a, a pivot point, a switch that got flipped where where it went from being, come on, I mean, you call it a company, you can start a company and call it anything, but not even have any, not make a single thing yet. So you had a single car, you called it a company, but I mean, at what point did it become an actual business where it's like, yeah, this is, we're going to get financed. We're going to actually start building stuff. When was that? I think, Dave, probably everybody will relate to, it. it's when the check got written. <laughs> well, what check is that? <laughs> so
0: so when when the co-founder and I looked at this and said, and, and so I went back after the Denver Auto Show and wrote a business plan, said, what could commercial vehicles look like? Hmm. Um, what could the market be? How big could the market be? Um, was it mostly BS? Be- Were
1: you just making stuff no, up? No, no,
0: it was very, what I was looking for was did the math work. And the math was very compelling. Huh. At that time, this was 2009. Gasoline was, two, it was five bucks a gallon. Uh, yeah. Diesel was, you know, in California, was $6 a gallon, so when you started talking about, hey, I can save a fleet 20% on the fuel, it was a very compelling model. Um, and we looked from a technology standpoint, we'd seen some of it already uh, in in place at Colorado State University and other places and what we'd put in the car. So from a technology, we didn't see a huge hurdle. From a market, it was pretty obvious, you know, given where fuel prices were, there was a market. Um, and, and we had a group of engineers interested. So the co-founder and I, went, when his wife looked at him and said, will you write the check? And he said, yes. Um, he wrote the check. I wrote a check and off we went.
1: Wow. Very good. Now, hey, listeners, this is Proco Proco360. Again, I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Tim Reeser of Lightning e Motors. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So we figured out sort of when you decided to turn it into a company, as you said, when the check got the first check was written, and one was by you and one was by your partner. Now, you've come a long way because you went public, uh, yes. through a, um, a merger with a blank check company called gig capital three. Did you even know what the heck that this blank check Merger go public thing was before you got involved now, a year ago. Um, I mean, it's pretty hot now. It, this whole it, thing. it's hot
0: now, but it was not. It was brand spanking new a year and a half ago. So uh, about last uh, March of 2020. So we're in the middle of you know COVID really taking off and trying to figure out what this means. And my lead investor BP Ventures, who's been extraordinary to us and a great partner, came to us and said, "Hey." oil prices just dropped to minus $15 a barrel. We're having to pay people to take it off the boat. We don't know what's going to happen. We see you all growing despite all of this and mm-hmm. really inflecting, but we don't know how it's going to play. You should start looking at other capital options. So I started looking at, at can we go public uh, and how long that was going to take. Uh, other private options, I'd raised venture capital for a long time and, and knew what that was, you know, what the continued getting more venture capital was going to look like. Um, and then I watched one a couple groups start to do this SPAC thing. I read about it, read deeply. Mm-hmm. I actually picked up the phone and and called until I, I had a chance to talk to some of the key people involved in those transactions and say, how does this work? What does it mean? And it, it all fell into place. Mm-hmm. They, we quickly became very interesting. We started calling some of the big bankers, who I didn't think would give us the time of day. And when Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and Oppenheimer, and Namira mm-hmm. all say, hey, we love what you're doing. We'd be interested in, in working with you. It just flowed from there. And so that happened from March to July. We did the research. The July to November, December, we wow. made it happen. We announced the uh, merger December 10th so it and was, then went public May 7th.
1: Yeah, so now Gig Gig Capital Three was essentially, uh, if I understand it correctly, they basically went out to investors and said, we want you to give us a potload of money and we're going to look for some company to – merge into us. We're public. We're going to merge them into us. They don't have to go public from from start. They can merge into us. We're already there. And uh, trust us. Give us your money. Trust us. We'll find something cool. Is that kind of how it works? That, that is. And there's 600 yeah. of those at the moment It's now. amazing so, to yes. me.
0: So, so at the, uh, back then, there was 180 to choose from. So when we started
1: doing this, and if you look a year previous, I think there was 40 to choose from. So, so 40 companies that had raised a bucket of money saying, we're going to go public when we find the right place to invest right. your money.
0: Well, it's actually a, a subtlety to that. They actually have already gone public. Are, that's right. They've already gone public. public. They're so like
1: a shell holding yes, it's a shell holding
0: company. So it's – yeah. The, the explanation around it, once I understood why it makes sense, and so the, the listeners may be very interested in it, what actually if happens If you make it is, interesting. Yeah, uh, I'll make it interesting. <laughs> I, I can promise you that. It may be too fast, but I'll make it Interesting. What a what a special purpose uh, asset corporation involves is going to the hedge funds and the banks and saying uh, invest in us and we'll find something very compelling. But the investment from a SPAC is is interesting in and of itself, and the fact that the investors the who invest in this blank check IPO take very little risk. They're guaranteed that if they don't like the deal, they get ten dollars and thirty cents back on a ten dollar investment. Really? Yes. So they take the IPO investors to a SPAC take virtually no risk. Um, so if they don't like it, they get their hmm. money back plus a little interest. If they like it, it could make them a lot of money really fast and they hmm. can get out as fast as they want. So when they, the, the original IPO investors in us for in the gig capital investment, when we announced quite a few of them took the opportunity to make 60, 70% of their money back,
1: hmm. got out and circulated yeah. it and did another one. So now you're lightning motors. Is it a public company or is gig capital three? I think you're now. They Gig Capital Three changed its name to Lightning E Motors, making you the CEO of a public company.
0: Correct. So our ticker symbol is ZEV, yeah. like zero yeah. emission vehicle. Yep. And and it's considered a merger. So that's part of what makes well, this SPACs yeah, interesting as well. It's merger. It's yes, just So so we merged into into a, into an empty company. Yes, into a exactly. Shell company. That's why so, so, yes, yeah, so we're
1: merging into an empty company that yeah. had two hundred million dollars from an IPO. But it's way easier than a company without the track record like Lightning e- Motors to go public and convince the world to give it money. You just have to find one SPAC that believes in you. So it's a much accelerated process, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, much
0: faster. So yeah. typical IPO, 18 months. We did this one from kind of beginning to search for a SPAC to going public and about uh, eight or nine months. Yeah, so, so much so, faster.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, it makes sense. Um, and and for investors in the SPAC, I guess if they trust the people who are doing it, that's a good. It's a good deal all the way around. Um, except it hurts some of the uh, financial institutions that used to make probably more money on on this process. But, but
0: they, they have no fear; they've all they, found they a way to make find, money yeah, in it too. They don't, yes, but they, now
1: you've got see. So, so um, you got one hundred twenty-five million dollars uh, of proceeds that you're using to expand from, and build from the IPO, and yes. then we
0: also. Part Part of doing a SPAC is also raising what they call a pipe, so which is uh, private investment in public equity, or is it? Yeah, yeah, private yeah. investment in public equity pipe. Um, so we also raised a hundred million dollars in the
1: pipe. So you're selling more shares so, at the same time. So
0: yes, essentially, and those were convertible note shares. So we raised effectively about two hundred and twenty-five million dollars all in,
1: and that'll last you six months. Well, um, <laughs> I yeah, a longer than that. But, <laughs> a lot longer than that. But yes. I mean, you've got projections that call for twenty thousand vehicles produced by twenty twenty five. You just announced—I referred to it earlier—a massive contract for seventy five hundred buses valued at eight hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, you're sitting here smiling. All your photos I see of you are smiling, but I mean. Isn't this freaking you out at some point? I mean, oh, you're going to oh, have absolutely. to deliver some massive stuff here. Yeah. Oh, oh the, from the
0: moment you get into it, um, it's playing in the big leagues. And, yeah. you know, just like anybody who signs on the dot for the big leagues, they expect you to get the hits or make the passes or take the receptions and score the touchdowns yeah. or or score the, the runs. So we're absolutely in the execution, but I've always
1: liked that. I want to execute. Yeah. I want to be there. I want to show everybody what we can do, and we're yeah, well on our way. This is a big undertaking. I mean, this is big. You guys are going to have to – like what's the X factor in where you were six months ago to where you need to be in two years as far as people, facilities, all that stuff? Yeah. So we've been very fortunate with facilities. So we, and I think it's an interesting, again, localized
0: story. Um, in the early 2000s, Hewlett-Packard ha- sold off its Loveland, Colorado manufacturing facility. Didn't sell it off. I'm sorry. Well, they they emptied it. There were 3,500 employees on a million square feet in Loveland, Colorado, perched on gorgeous hill, beautiful mountain views. It was the second facility Hewlett-Packard had ever built mm. and the first one outside of of uh, Palo Alto. Yeah. So, great facility, great space. Um, it had laid empty for quite a while. We were lucky enough to pick up uh, that space and now I've grown into it. So, we've got about 250,000 of the million square feet and
1: growing. So and it's in, Colorado. it's in Colorado. So, you know, that's that one. Do you have investors at this point that say, you know, this is all well and good, cute, you're in Loveland, but, you know, it's time to move to some place Else, time to go wherever. So, in in the
0: VC world, that was quite common because yeah. it was all about where can you attract investors and where can you find it. Yeah, yeah. In the public world, it's all a very practical, pragmatic approach. What, it, where is it inexpensive to manufacture? Where does it logistically make sense to manufacture? And where can you find the talent? So, from that perspective, we've been very fortunate in Colorado. We've got the building because of what it is and where it is is very inexpensive. About a third of what it costs to be in you know a big market yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. California. Um, From a labor pool, we're sitting uh, 20 minutes from Colorado State University, 30 minutes from University of Colorado Boulder, about 45 minutes from NREL and and School of Mines. So we've had an extraordinary spot in terms of labor. And when we hire people out of state, we've had no issue getting people to move to Colorado. So from, from those perspectives, our pragmatic investors are quite happy that we have a very effective place that we can scale, that we can do it cost effectively, and we can find labor.
1: So Colorado is going to be home to a large vehicle production factory. Indeed. Yes. Wow. That's exciting. I mean, we've never had that here. I think that's really cool. And the people side is very exciting. So
0: it's the neat part about the production is it's very artisanal. So again, we've explained this idea that we're doing a lot of customization. Yeah. It's not yeah. just, you know, a, a warehouse. It's not an factory. assembly line it's either. So people line. are really
1: yeah. using skills to build these. Right. Yeah. So
0: it's it's skilled labor, a lot of engineers. We've added, yeah. w- this year we'll add uh, over 120 staff uh, this, yeah. this calendar year. So pretty significant. A lot of those are engineers and sure. research and development. And um, now the unique part about Colorado where it's been hard is we, we've needed a lot of finance people who have have public mm. finance expertise in so Colorado yeah. doesn't have as many public companies. So oh, we yeah, certainly yeah. had had to bring in, you know, import some talent sure. from other places where there were more public companies, but that makes it been,
1: been an exciting thing to do. Well, last, last, uh, section here, I, I want to talk about sort of what you've learned running, um, and funding Colorado startups. Um, right. You, you, you've done technology transfer now from CSU. Um, a couple of questions. One is, what do you know now that, you know, and I, I always wonder this myself, what do you know now that you wish you'd known like 20 years ago that you could have really, if you'd known it, you would have put it to use and you'd have so much <laughs> of a happier, better, more, so whatever. What do you wish you'd known 20 years it, ago? It,
0: I think one, I could have, uh, cut off quite a bit of the time to get here by dreaming big earlier on. So I think it, I, I was very lucky to have a great, uh, professor and then somebody I worked with when I was at CSU, Brian Wilson. Um, and one of the things he told me uh, when I went and joined him at, at Colorado State University at, uh, there to spend technologies out was, we're going to solve big problems. We're going to look for big problems and, and solve them with big solutions. And so as I look back and think, gee, I wish I would have done that right out of the gate and said, I'm going to look for big mm-hmm. problems. Um, but I'd always felt, hey, where am I going to get the money? How are we going to solve the problem? And now, having gone through what we've gone through and having money in the bank, I look back on that and say- a lot of times there's a chicken and egg there in order to get big money you need to have a big solution and be solving a big problem and so sometimes those become self-healing once you've got something Mm. big and that was a big part of going public was everybody said hey you can't go public unless you're going to go big you you have to go big or nobody's interested and and that's been an exciting place to be as you said it's big shoes to fill but it's been an exciting place to be because there's we're solving a big problem
1: that's cool so uh, I asked you what what you would have done differently. Looking back to, I mean, what do you think when you think about the personal values that have been a constant for you all the way back from when you started to right now, what are those? So first was people.
0: I, I like people. I want to take care of people. Um, even in transitionary periods in my career, like so many others, I'd been a consultant. And I realized quickly I didn't like working by myself. I love team sports. I like playing team sports, like watching team sports. I like being a team sport player. And so business to me is about a team sport. How do you get a team to really excel and be much better than the individual parts that are there? And how do you make it rewarding for everybody who's involved? And so one of, again, the great parts about going public was a lot of my team that's come with me have have uh, done very well in the process of as well. And that's been very, very rewarding to me and something I wanted all the way along the way. So take care of people, be good to people, make it about people was always uh, part of, of my ethos and part of what I wanted. Um, the other part was I wanted to do something technical, something special. Um, but I learned early on one of the challenges with that is is you have to make it elegant. And the difference is uh, elegant means you make a, a tough problem and make it look easy um, and in fact that's required in order to scale if you can't mm-hmm. make a tough problem look easy you can't scale and so again I use my my quarterback analogy the quarterbacks who learn to slow the game down and can, can net it out and figure out what to do in that six second time frame are the ones that are successful yeah. the ones where the game's still going too fast and they can't figure out where to go and it's really complicated can't be successful
1: well you know Tim Tebow was highly entertaining to watch as he scrambled and shuffled and did all of his improv- improvising and but you you know, he never, you know, he he right. couldn't win, and couldn't in scale. fact, <laughs> couldn't he couldn't scale, and and you know as much. Fun as it is to watch people do that, that doesn't attract investment, does it? Correct. So, it probably doesn't invest yeah. a lot of trust among your people either, I wouldn't no, think. It, like exactly. Top people when you
0: think about yeah. how you make it happen, you have to be able to attract people, you have to be able to sell it in a short period of time, explain yeah. it in a short period of time. And that requires elegance and it requires taking a hmm. very complex problem yeah. and simplifying it in a way that people can grasp it quickly and grasp yeah. the solution quickly. You know,
1: that it does make me think about, you know, my own my own entrepreneurial experience. Basically I had a small scrappy company. Uh, it would never scale because I never, it was never about being elegant. It was about, you know, throwing a lot of people at it, just being determined and succeeding. But that doesn't attract investors, does Correct.
0: it? Correct. Correct. But it, it can still be very rewarding. So I, I think of a lot of people and even myself early on, it can be very rewarding to have a scrappy company. So I don't want to take anything away from yeah, that yeah, but in yeah. terms of, but the can difference. you take that company public? No.
1: Yeah, but but, <laughs> but I think it's you've done a nice job sort of explaining that this is the difference that you know scrappy companies yeah they can succeed but they're not they don't scale they don't attract long-term vision or interest and yeah it's very interesting and, and that's where i started that. my career was hey you know make it complicated
0: and then i realized it could be a complicated problem but i had to simplify it
1: yeah that's cool let's end on that i'm your host dave Tabor today i'm proco 360 you've been listening to my conversation with tim Reeser, founder and ceo of lightning e-motors tim thanks and th- thanks for that wrap-up too it was pretty insightful Thank you, Dave. Uh, Always great to see you. Thank you for the time. Listeners, glad you're here on ProCo 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the ProCo 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, please, it's a huge help. Submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors, First Bank, Kinsley Meetings, Via Technologies, Digital Frontier Printing, and the Colorado Chamber of Commerce. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado.